0: We then highlight concrete action steps that you can use to improve your life. And now, your host, Ian Dawson McKay.
1: And today's guest is Rob Bernanke, who's returning for a round two. Rob is head instructor of Island Top Team. He's the creator of the submission formula, the BJJ formula, and also the modern leg lock formula. He's a purveyor of the Rob Bernanke Online Academy, a master of conceptual jiu jitsu, and occasional master's competitor. This is round two with Rob. Please see episode number 117 for part one. We joined this one in a pre-interview chat, and as we kept chatting about great stuff, I decided to hit the record button and we went into it. That's why there's no formal intros at the start. This is one is more of a chat than a normal interview, and Rob is fantastic throughout. And in this interview, we discuss key insights to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu competing, how to prepare physically and technically for competing, why you don't need more cardio to be a better competitor in most situations, how you can strengthen your mindset for BJJ competitions, a key rubric to focus on in your jujitsu development, and so much more. And now, let's get to the interview. like the idea of competing, but it, it's that moment of like, where do you go? How do you plan this? Because if you're not doing this full-time, you know, training week in, week out, really pushing it, going through every competition you go to, how do you go from a hobbyist to a, com- a competitor? I can't seem to find anybody that can say that,
2: you're either, mm-hmm. either hardcore one way or hardcore
1: the other. Okay, uh, well, I, know, let,
2: me, uh, let, me give, uh, let me push back against that notion, first of all, because I would say that it's, there is very much a, a wide spectrum of, uh, of, of competing and, and how to compete, and it's nowhere near as simple as the distinction between you're just a hobbyist or you're a hardcore competitor uh and like i just again from from personal experience um so hopefully i can expound on that a little bit and let me ask for like have you have you ever competed before
1: unless it's in the gym like the sh- the team challenges and stuff like that but not actually other schools have come in and we've had a bit of a bit of a fun time but not not a proper competition
2: Okay, but so that's an example of like, that is somewhere along the spectrum. So for instance, at our club, we have, um, are you familiar with the Quintet tournaments?
1: Not really, unfortunately.
2: Okay, so uh, Quintet is a, uh, I believe they're a Japanese promotion. And what they do is they put together teams. uh, So the name Quintet comes from the fact that there are five members on each team. And it's actually, if you haven't watched it, I highly recommend checking it out. There should be a few of them available on on YouTube, uh, and if not, then anybody with a Fight Pass subscription, I think, can get access to, to the uh, older ones. Uh,
1: oh, right! Is this like when you see the um, uh, the zombie and all that kind of stuff, and that they go in team after team? Like, um, yeah, I think I've seen some of it. Some yeah, it, of it. it's
2: it's basically the 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 matchups are. Uh, like you have a t- sorry, a time you have a, a weight limit for the whole team. So if your five guys can't weigh more than I don't know what it is like 800 pounds or so, like who, who knows? I can't remember what it is. So basically, there's a lo- a ton of strategy involved. Um, and I promise you, I will circle back to competing overall, but, but this is kind of an interesting um version of competing because f- most people who uh have the opportunity to compete in jiu jitsu are going to do it as individuals, even if they're, you know, like you might sign up for a tournament as a part of a team or whatever, but you're definitely going out there and winning or losing as an individual. So the quintet format brings the team aspect to it. And so the the strategy is really interesting as to how you set up your lineup, who's gonna go first, who's gonna go second, because the format is submission only. And if there isn't a submission, both parties are eliminated. So you you basically it, it solves probably the the main issue with submission only, which is that it's at least submission only with the uh, the EBI format, which is that if you suck at jujitsu, you can still stall and make it to overtime, uh, and you can't do that in quintet. So you get much more interesting aggressive matches, uh, and there's a lot of. Uh, coaching input in the sense of like not necessarily like cornering somebody through the match, but there's a lot of coaching input in figuring out how your lineup is going to go and, and trying to figure out how the opposing team is going. Anyway, it's, it's a really interesting format. I personally think it's easily the most entertaining format for jiu-jitsu competition. And I happen to think that it's a phenomenal way to introduce people to competing. So we do these at my academy every few months. We have um, an in-house quintet or quartet. And basically, however many people show up, we divide them up into teams. And sometimes there's enough for teams of five. Sometimes there's only teams of four, whatever. And it's, again, it's, it's the exact same format. Submission only. If you don't sub the person, they are eliminated. So if you're the sort of person who wants to get into competing, but you've never competed before, this is the perfect introduction to it, because their weight is not directly on your shoulders alone. You can be very inexperienced, you can be a beginner, and you get put on a team. And even if you don't win, even if you get submitted right away, your team can still go on to win. And you can, for example, contribute to the team effort by eliminating someone who's a lot better than you by just being able to last through uh, a round. So I think that, th- like, as far as the spectrum that's the best way to start. That's the best place to start. If you're a jujitsu, uh, you know, practitioner, you've never competed before. You want to compete, but you're really nervous about it. This kind of in-house team-based uh, competition is pretty much perfect.
1: I really like that because. It's that was something that everybody kept going about how it was your own personal journey, your journey, your voyage of discovery and all this kind of stuff. And at no point did anybody really sort of talk about the team aspect of it, how to work with your, your your team is, you know, to, to build each other up and stuff like that. You know, there's all these like Gracie Barra philosophies, but everybody I've seen compete from my gym have always done it on their own. And a lot of them are not allowed to compete under the Gracie Barra name. Um, And I'm not quite sure. I think there's something about you have to be a member of the team, the competition team and all this kind of malarkey. But I was just finding that like the whole political aspect of it, you know, it just seemed a bit kind of like, surely if you're a member of a team in a gym, you should be a member of that team out. And it shouldn't matter if you win or lose. It should be great to be getting your guys out to compete. I I just found it a bit strange how they were doing this. And I felt like I was completely on my own, sort of preparing for this. I mean, I'm 37 now. And, you know, I got into this late. I was, what, 36? I'm absolutely loving it. Got my blue belt. And now I'm thinking, if I go up against guys who are four, you know, four years into their blue belts, four, four stripes, I'm going to get desiccated. And I'm thinking, how can I start planning this?
2: So well, I started- so, sorry, sorry to cut you off. Let, let me just, um, before we get into, the, like, your personal planning, uh, can we just, let's cover a little bit of the spectrum because Mm -hmm. uh, I just want to make sure that we like, let's sort of um, clarify our terms. So I would say that on the very uh, edge of the spectrum is what we've discussed already with these kind of in-house, whether it's quintet or like, you know, an open mat style in-house tournament where you're not competing against people from outside of the gym. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is the sort of the the easiest introduction to it. And then uh, on the next stage of the spectrum, you will have, The um, the sort of round robin tournaments because there are essentially two kinds of tournaments you'll see uh, which are like the single elimination uh, or round robin and then sometimes you have like double elimination and repishage brackets and stuff like that but most tournaments are either round robin or single elimination so if you want to kind of go a little bit further um, along and compete with other people, a round robin tournament is a good way to do it and then you get into the single elimination tournament um, which are That's when you you first really get the like, okay, if I lose, my day is done, and there's nothing else to come. Uh, And that is probably the first type of tournament that people can enter where the consequences of failure are let's say severe enough that for some people it breaks them and they never come back. Uh, I've definitely seen this where somebody goes into a single elimination tournament, they go in, they get a, an unfavorable matchup in the first round, they get subbed pretty quickly and they just decide to never compete again, which is a shame. Uh, but that's kind of the way it goes. And then within that, like once you get into a single elimination tournaments, that's what most, professional tournaments tend to be. And the the highest level of competition is usually uh, single elimination, which by the way, I don't think is the best way to decide who the best grappler is, but we can talk about that later on. Um, and then, and so, so those are, that's the spectrum of, I guess, types of competition that you'll see. Um, and then obviously you'll have like invitation only professional events, but like, let's set those aside for now. Um, so within that spectrum, you have, different ways of competing. And then we have a spectrum of types of competitors and depending on how much you want to subdivide that we can go anywhere from, you know, very casual hobbyists who might do a couple of tournaments at, uh, you know, either just their lower belts or maybe even at each belt level to pretty serious hobbyists who train, you know, multiple times a week and like to compete, uh, to, I would say, what we would call like high-level amateur athletes, guys who will do multiple tournaments uh, at each belt level. They, they will win tournaments at their belt level in a, in a local kind of tournament format, uh, but will never go to like, let's say, PANS or Worlds for IBJJF. And then you've got the like pretty serious professional competitors who even and these guys exist at blue belt? They exist at purple belt. Guys who are using local tournaments as practice for more major tournaments, whether it's pans, whether it's ADCC type, t- type tournaments, and then obviously you've got your elite full-time grapplers who are you know high belts who are trying to win at the world level. So. Uh, and then you've got guys who are like doing professional invitation only type tournaments on the sub only scene, which are kind of a close equivalent, although not at the same level of skill to the elite level guys that are trying to win at the world level. So uh, I don't know how many, you know, categories I mentioned there because you could still subdivide it between those. Um, but you've got at least, let's say half a dozen, maybe more different types of competitors that, uh, fall anywhere along that, that spectrum.
1: Jeez, it's i suppose that's the thing it's like it just shows how little a lot of people coming into their like idea of competition don't even understand the the, the wide spectrum of it you know we just go oh i want to compete and people are, oh how do you want to compete gi no gi what area what kind of level it's geez yeah, it kind of opens it up when you put it like
2: that yeah and and it's unfortunately especially in the gi jiu jitsu scene there is not usually a meaningful distinction made between the different types of competitions and the different types of competitors. So there's a lot of either misunderstanding or intentional obfuscation uh, on the part of, you know, especially certain um, tournament companies, which leads to like, I mean, I would argue that to an outside observer, the jujitsu competition scene is kind of clownish because in in other sports at least certainly in other combat sports you have a pretty clear delineation between amateur and professional and what the levels are whereas here you have like if you go to an IBJJF event particularly a, a more major one you will have every level along that spectrum that i described and they're all competing with one another and there's no distinction made so you can have somebody who's literally You know, just got their blue belt. They've been training for two years. They've competed once or twice. They are the the definition of of a hobbyist, and they're competing against a full time professional athlete whose job it is to win worlds at blue belt, who has as much mat time as most black belts. And if you don't know going in that it's possible to face someone like that, and you go and you lose to one of them you could feel really awful about your skills in a way that's undeserved. And this is what breaks people. This is what get, gets somebody that shows up to one competition and then never competes again because it wasn't explained to them that there are such distinctions. Like I, I've had students who, you know, won a, a master's um, you know, mastered two or three, uh, you know, relatively major event uh, at their belt level and then decided that they were going to go do Worlds and I had to be the one to break it to them. Like, dude, if you try to do Worlds at the adult division at your belt level, you'll get submitted in 30 seconds. I'm sorry nobody explained to you the distinction between, you know, Master 3 Pans division and adult Worlds, even though it's the same belt rank, but you have exactly a 0.0 chance of winning anything in that division. And people who don't know that, like, you know, it it sounds harsh to do that, but I'd rather do that than have them spend $2,000 on a trip to worlds and come home, you know, three minutes later. Uh, So, yeah, I, I think our sport has a long way to go to making these distinctions obvious because frankly, if, if it was more obvious, far fewer people would bother going to these major events because they would know that they're just cannon fodder for professional athletes uh so yeah i think the state of competition in jiu-jitsu is really misrepresented
1: because that's something i have seen like i've got a guy in our gym who is just phenomenal just seems to be getting invited to all these invite only's you know he's one of these guys you put him you pin his shoulders to the floor and he's like the terminator in terminator three you know his hips can spin backwards and he can rotate himself out and like he just seems to be like unable to hold the guy down and he's super flexible and jumps around the place and then i see a guy who can barely do any of the basic stuff and next second i see he's in and put himself in for british um i think it was the british national championships and he got like fourth place Yep. And I don't know. And I was sitting there going, is that because there wasn't enough people? That well, that's exactly it.
2: Yeah. So the the categories are so uh, extensive now. Like, you know, if you show up at a, you know, let's, let's use PANS as an example uh, for the IBJJF. And I'm sure there are equivalent tournaments in, in, in Europe. There are so many divisions uh, that, you know, like you can be, you can, cl- or, or, you know, like Master Worlds. You, you could show up to the Master Five. Uh, you know, purple belt division. And, you know, you're going to be whatever 50 odd years old, and you might face one or two guys. And you're going to come home with your gold medal from the world championships and run around telling everybody that you're a world champion. Uh, You know, again, in my little area, geographically, there are a couple people like this who are like, you know, quote, unquote, world champions. And it's like, Sorry to break it to you, but you're not like you you, you are absolutely 100 percent not a world champion by any meaningful definition of the word. There's so many asterisks after your world championship that it makes it meaningless. Right. Like and that's what I mean when I say compared to other sports, like you don't have a master five yellow belt uh, Olympic champion in judo. You just have the Olympic champion in judo, right? Like there there aren't these bullshit categories. And so like I I always say that um, the IBJJF model is to sell fake glory to narcissists. It's to create enough categories that almost anybody can be a winner or at least a medalist. And that's what they're selling. They're not selling excellence. They're not selling tournaments. They're selling fake glory
1: it's like one thing for me for example is like i i wanted to do it for years and i was always so like my self-esteem and confidence were nowhere near what they are now like i just was i would self-sabotage as soon as i start getting like you know in the light and people started saying oh you're doing you're doing well i would always end up giving it up as soon as it got hard or like fucking it up for myself kind of thing yep. and for me it was just if i could get in and start training and then i thought i really like this i'm actually good at it and i kept going well and then i thought i want to compete but the thought of it was just terrifying and then one of my friends competed and i think he won one and lost one and then i seen some a white belt came on and she got like she she won it heel hooking three different people a white belt and mm-hmm. some competition she did and i thought there's no worry, you know, the match the same up in quality wise because my friend was like a blue belt, you know, lapel guard all this kind of stuff, and I just thought it's unfair on him because you know, and it's like just because they, you maybe don't know the moves, you get beaten at white belt level, but yeah. at blue belt level, it's the level experience, and then I started thinking, well, like I want to compete, and then all the COVID situation, i was ramping myself up to do it, but that's my problem is the skills. That, I'd hopefully are there I know roughly what I'm doing but I would end up just screwing it something in my head so if I could actually just accomplish that and do a competition to me that's a a win but like you're saying for somebody who's coming in and using it as a a warm up to a big championship they don't see it as a oh we're going to boost his confidence he sees it as cannon fodder you know
2: yeah get- that's, that's, <laughs> the there, that's exactly it so let me uh l- let's get into a little bit of like how we want to prepare for a competition uh and what i would first try to get someone to understand and i and i do this with my students because we actually have we have a really good record in competition. Like despite the fact that we are a hobbyist school in every sense of the term, like, you know, I've had a couple of students that have ever competed at any kind of high level. Uh, and it's, it's extremely infrequent. Uh, and even the, the guys that do compete somewhat regularly, they are very much hobbyists. So, uh, what I have to try to communicate to everybody from the outset is very much let go of the the pressure to be successful, despite because that's actually like the the upside of being successful in competitions as a team is that it's you know it's good for your reputation and you get some notoriety, especially in a small town. You know we get uh, our name in the paper because we win tournaments, uh, but the downside is for an individual student, they will go into the any tournament, even their first tournament, and they're going to carry the weight of the team's name. On their shoulders and they're gonna feel like man everybody else wins gold if I don't win gold I'm blah 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 blah. I'm letting the team down I'm letting myself down I'm this I'm that and so I have to go through the process of trying to get them to let all that go because first off the results of any like individual match or any individual tournament are they could not be less relevant uh, to our team as a whole and even to them as an individual the biggest thing that I try to convey to people about competing is that it is just, I guess we, we kind of talked about this in the previous episode about how like everything is a skill. Every individual subset uh, of jujitsu is a skill and competing is very much its own skill. So unless you come to the table with previous experience competing and not just previous experience competing, but previous experience competing in an individual sport, there is literally no way that you will be anything other than a, a a muted shadow of your uh, self of your abilities. Like whatever your in gym performance looks like, you will be a, a tiny fraction of that on competition day. And so when you look at your skills in the gym and what you're able to do and who you're able to roll with, if you have a pretty good idea of kind of like where you stand amongst your teammates, amongst the guys who do like to compete, just know that, and and, and what their results are. Like, it's pretty common for people to use somebody else, you know, like, you know, white belt Joe, who's never competed, will look at white belt Jack and be like, well, I roll pretty well with that guy, and he wins tournaments when he enters them. Therefore, I should be able to do the same. But if you don't take into account what white belt Jack's competition experience is, then you're going to be in for a very rude awakening. So, like your in the gym skill is has got almost nothing to do with your competition day skill. I've got some students at my club that are remarkably skillful in the gym. Uh, you know, the kind, you know, the, the sort of colored belts that will tap visiting brown and black belts, and and without a ton of trouble but they'll go out and compete and they'll just shit the bed horribly. So it's just got nothing to do with it. Your in-the-gym skill has nothing to do with it. What you're doing is working your way up to being skillful at competing. And I know this better than most uh, because I'm still in the process myself of working my way up to being good at competing. So that like the very first step in deciding to compete is knowing where you are on that spectrum of, competition experience. Like You can be very good at jiu-jitsu in the gym, but if you have zero competition experience, you will be very bad at jiu-jitsu when you go out to compete. Your game will shrink remarkably. The amount of techniques that you'll be able to do will be, again, a fraction of what you normally are able to do. You have to go into it with the mentality of, I am doing this as a first step so that I can become good at it. If you're doing it to kind of see what your jujitsu is like, it's not going to give you any indication of what your jujitsu is like. That's a, a complete false premise.
1: Because that's definitely something. When I mean, we discussed this, and when we were uh, researching your, your your work and looking at like the subset idea, I thought this is not so much on what I can do like jujitsu wise, it's more a case of what I can do under bright lights with people watching in a completely different environment, how you know what how much I panic on the day. But it's building up that like you were saying, it's not so much like the being a good jiu it's being good at and then each individual And one of them was just being able to just not panic on the day, being able to compete to get into to get used to it. And I really like that idea, but then I started thinking, then all these other things started springing to my mind. <laughs> I was just like, oh, no. But is that how you do it? Would you just go in, do the uh, the local one, just think, oh, I'm going to go in and just freeball it? Or would you go in with a plan? Would you start prepping for it
2: before oh, it? Oh, no, definitely prep for it. But the, the, the you can't prep for the bright lights. You can't prep for the stress, really. I mean, there, there are simulations that you can do. So like, Uh, before, before I get into that, let me just state something that is really important because people, uh, people, it's almost always guys that have this idea again, that like we've talked about it. I think we talked about in the last one. They all think they're good at certain things. Um, one of the things people like to think about themselves is that they are, will inherently show up under pressure. Uh, and not only that, it's, it's, uh, people overall tend to believe that some people, are just clutch under pressure and some people aren't and it's just an immutable characteristic and I don't think that's true at all. I think that if, if you've never been put in a stressful situation where you have to perform a difficult skill then you're not going to be good and no matter like there's no one's just going to show up and be super clutch at something under pressure right off the bat. You might be like genetically predisposed to being skillful. Like there's certainly people who are just good athletes and they learn quickly, but there's still the factor of becoming good at competing. So I think people put too much pressure on themselves in that sense where they're, they're like, okay, well I'm going to show up on the day and I want to see how I do. Well, I can almost guarantee you if you're trying to see how you do under pressure, you won't do well. Now that doesn't mean that you won't win, and this is where the uh, the the idea of like false positives starts to come in. I talk a lot about false positives in technique and in training within the gym, but there are definitely false positives in competition. Like you could show up uh, on the day and have a massive adrenaline dump and be extremely shitty at your jujitsu but everyone else you face also has a massive adrenaline dump and is just a little bit shittier at their jujitsu. and you can win the tournament that day and you can win whatever three matches and come away from it thinking, man, I really showed up clutch. You absolutely didn't. You were terrible. It's just that everyone else was more terrible. So
1: yeah,
2: it's, it's, it's absolutely a possibility. And so, It's really important to distinguish between being good under pressure because you've developed the skill of being good under pressure versus being good under pressure because you just happen to be, you know, a a, a badass. That doesn't really exist. Every uh, profession that is in any way involved with performance under pressure has a grooming process that takes people through the, like, you know, if you look at like amateur boxing, if you look at any number of sports where even guys who are meant to be killers, they're fed cannon fodder to build up their confidence. So they are like, you know, Mike Tyson is a great example of that. You know, there, there are lots of guys who are extremely gifted and their coaches know that this guy is going to be an elite level professional, you know, killer athlete but it still takes time to build them up and give them these, let's face it, to a certain degree, easy wins. Because if you face a a challenge that's too difficult too early, it breaks your confidence. And then it takes a very long time to build it back up. And you see sometimes guys who are built up in the wrong way where they, they, they only were fed easy wins and they weren't slowly built up to the point where they face challenges at the right time, then when they lose, and I think that's kind of what happened to Mike Tyson, and I might be using the wrong example, so if somebody can correct me, please do, but it did seem like with him, as soon as he faced anything other than an easy uh, opponent, he broke mentally. And so there's definitely a, uh, a process for getting somebody through the initial phase of like, I've never competed before. I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm going to be awful under pressure. And then slowly introducing them to pressure so that by the time they become a professional, they've got a ton of confidence because they've had some easy wins, but they've also faced difficulty and had to overcome it. And those are the, you know, the, the elite level, whether it's in a sport or whether it's uh, you know a, a, a simple example from a different field would be in the military, right? Like if you want to become a Navy SEAL, there's an extensive process for that because they're not just going to pick a dude who's like, thinks they're going to show up clutch on the day when he gets airdropped into Afghanistan. Like they've got to get you to the point where you've experienced enough stress and been put through enough, been put through the ringer enough that they know you're going to perform on the day. So like the whole process of being a clutch performer under the bright lights is a process and it's an extensive one and people have to know that when you go in to compete the first time it's it's just a tiny tiny step in a very long process and just treat it that way and not put any um uh any weight on the shoulders about it
1: and is there a way that you could train that externally would that be a case of accepting like say bigger challenges at work or for going into the gym and trying to do like you know throw shark tanks is that the kind of pressure that could help at all or is honestly that
2: i i would i would say no like I said, you can simulate it so what what we do in our competition training is we definitely do shark tanks and we do simulated matches and you can take the simulation pretty far like you can have uh, multiple refs you can have um it's helpful to have people around like simulating crowd noise you can even play music you could like you can do all kinds of things to create the simulation, but it's really the 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 process on the day of stepping out yeah. there and just you know, facing somebody that you don't know and knowing that if you don't win, your day is done. That the, you just there's there's no way to truly replicate that. That's why you you have to go out and compete. That's why n- it, no matter how much simulation you do, uh, you're you just can't be that good at competing until you've competed a bunch.
1: Because that was one of my original questions and I kind of already answered it when I wrote it, was can you replicate that atmosphere in the gym so you can't actually get to that point? And it's like, no, not really. You have to kind of put yourself into that environment to get used to it, to learn to control yourself under that. And, that, you know, and obviously you'll get beaten and beaten for a while until you can learn to do that. And that's like a subset skill you need to learn.
2: Yeah. But you you don't have to get well, so you, but you don't have to get beaten a lot. Like that's the one thing I would like, and I don't want to reference my experience too much because my, my experience is a little bit unusual and it's, uh, it it may not translate for everybody. How my, uh, my purpose for competing is different than it is for some people. So like it's not too important, but like, uh, I haven't lost very much in competition. I, I, I haven't competed a tremendous amount, but I've competed enough times now, and I've only lost like a pretty a small handful of matches, and almost always, uh, you know, outside of my weight class kind of stuff. Um, so I don't think that, and I'm getting a lot better at competing. Um, so I don't think that losing a bunch is a necessary ingredient. Uh, it, 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 in fact, I think losing too much just like it's, it's counterproductive. So I do think there's um, there's something to be said for just the like the mentality that you take on prior to the tournament. It will help you, will help reduce the amount of competition that you need to derive the benefit. Like if you go in with a bunch of pressure uh, around your performance, I think that's more detrimental. And I think you'll have to compete a lot more get over that whereas if you go into it as a as part of a process uh and as a kind of you know a scientific research where i'm going to change a couple things about how i go into this and let's see what the results are uh then i i think your your time frame from your first competition match to the first one where you can go out there and feel fairly comfortable will be drastically reduced I, i i do think there's a lot to be said for going in with the mentality of, this is an experiment. This is a skill that I'm building. And, you know, obviously you want to win and you're going in and you're preparing to win. Like I'm not trying to advocate for like, oh, fuck it, like you said, free ball. it, Just show up and whatever happens, happens. Because that takes a lot of responsibility off your shoulders and it allows for this um, very easy excuse that, oh, you know, I wasn't taking it that seriously. I wasn't out there to win. I was just out there to... to to see what I could do no you're out there to win you go out there and you're trying to win but also know that part of learning how to win is learning how to compete and and don't put too much weight on your shoulders about it does that make sense
1: definitely because when the because I've had friends who have done both you know people who have signed up like last minute and others who have kind of had very strict plans, and you see them doing like double shifts every day. They go into the gym between classes, and they, you know, and they really are taking it serious. And then I've got a, a friend who just went, "Oh, there's one coming up. Oh, I'm going to sign up for it." And I thought, like, you know, it was, it was interesting to see the different mentality. But like, even sometimes when I I talk about it, I notice my language is very sort of negative. It's very sort of self-defeatist. Have you had experiences with with people you've trained where? You've had to work on their mindset, their their approach to it, like almost like adopting a growth mindset that they can go to competitions.
2: Oh, absolutely, and I mean, even I would say that for myself, that that's been part of the process because I I had a very um, unusual, I, I guess, rate of exposure to competing. I I only competed once before getting my black belt. And it was at brown belt, uh, and, and I did all right. I think I got silver in, in a in a tournament, um, and then I, so my first and it was a no gi tournament, and, and it was um, I think it was a round robin tournament as well. So anyway, um, the my first like gi tournament experience was as a black belt, which is not something I recommend to people because I had a lot of weight on my shoulders.
1: It's pretty intense as well. Yeah,
2: yeah. It was, and I was fortunate enough to win. Uh, and I, I went a couple of years without competing, and then in the intervening years, I became, you know, somewhat internet jiu-jitsu famous. And so when I got back to competing, there was even more pressure because I felt like, man, what if I have a bad day and I get subbed, and then there's going to be like, you know, a bunch of <laughs> a bunch of comments out there about, oh look, Mr. Frames Levers can't even win a tournament. Like, it, I, there was so much in my head about my performance going out and competing after a, a layoff that uh, I had a, a lot of pretty negative like self-talk and it was, it was really a process to go out and do it anyway. Like I was, I was challenging myself to get out there and be like, you know what? I, I've, I have to do it. I want to put my money where my mouth is. I want to try to show what I can do, even though I'm not a, a frequent competitor. Uh, I know there are a ton of people out there like me who, Don't compete that much, want to go out and compete, but they feel like they have some kind of reputation on the line. I'm sure there are plenty of black belts who never competed, would like to compete at black belt, but feel like if they lose, it will, you know, there's an imposter syndrome, it will diminish the validity of their black belt. And so I definitely wanted to go out and compete and be like, look, none of you guys have anywhere near as much on the line as I do because I've got a reputation out there as an instructor in the community. And so, you know, like if I can do it, you can definitely do it. So that, that helped me. It, it helped create a uh, a purpose to competing that wasn't just about like for, um, for one side, I did want to prove myself, but on the other side, it was like, win or lose, you know, if I go out there and I show people that I can just put it on the line, that will be beneficial. And so that helped me get out of that negative, like, Oh man! If I lose, it's the end of the world kind of thing. Uh, so I very much have had to do that, and that's how I kind of advise people to get over it: is find a purpose outside of the winning and losing, and that can turn the the the, the potential negative self talk into positive self talk. you know, purpose is a really powerful motivator.
1: That's that's a fantastic way of looking at it because. That was something I I did struggle with imposter syndrome when I got my blue belt. I, yeah, I remember rolling with a few people and thinking, "Geez, this white belt guy's tough." And I think I was just kind of I wasn't being using jujitsu. Uh, you know, I had I think I was being lazy at the time because I had other stuff in my mind to work and that. And I started judging myself off of that and thinking, "I'm going to be found out here. I'm going to be tapped by every white belt." And you know, and I kind of just stayed a very stagnated game you know I kind of stayed the things that worked for me I didn't try new stuff and develop and find new flavors of jiu or whatever that annoying scene is and yep. I got to that point where I was like I stopped moving forward because I was afraid of going back and for me I had all these questions about the best conditioning option strength and conditioning but I think the mindset thing is really the most important because there are so many people just now thinking I have to compete because my friend's competing or You know it's like we put so much pressure on ourselves. i mean if you were how did you learn to take that pressure off yourself was it just going in and thinking i'm going to be an experiment and learn this subset and develop this or did you find like meditation did you find
2: books were helpful Honestly, honestly none of that i i the i wasn't really able to take the pressure off myself until i'd competed a few times I very much went into like my get my local circumstance, uh, you know, like, you know, on a global level, most people are familiar with the black belts who compete, but in certain localities, you have a fair number of black belts who don't compete. So in, in my area, um, certainly for the longest time, there weren't any black belts who competed. So I wanted to be the black belt who competed in my little geographically isolated area. Um, And, and I wanted to be the sort of leader that led from the front. And so that was, that was just a personal, uh, I guess, um, a a personal benchmark that I wanted to meet. I I didn't want to encourage people to compete if I wasn't going to do it myself. Uh, So the, the pressure that I put on myself early on, and then again, later on was very much, uh, it, it was significant and I didn't find a way to get around it. I just found a way to 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 turn it into a positive. I, I don't think that the pressure goes away. And I think the people who are looking for or the nerves go away. I think the people who are looking for a way to get rid of that stuff are they're in for a rude awakening because I like I've I've spoken to some incredibly experienced Athletes uh, and you know world champion level guys, and, and they still get nervous. <laughs> like uh, that doesn't go away. Uh, it's the the, um, the the desire to reduce anxiety is a really powerful one. Uh, I think if people start to reframe it as excitement, I, that's the only like trick that I think works for some people. Is that the you know excitement and fear and anxiety are they basically feel the same? It's just how they're interpreted by. Uh, by your brain, by your your nervous system. So if you can turn it into, I'm excited to go out and compete, uh, and and that that started to, to to happen for me. Like there was a point where I reached uh, recently, like just just before I did uh, I, I did uh, Nogi Worlds in 2019. So just before that, I started to get out there and be able to go and have fun, and like I would go out and compete, and I would have a goal of specifically doing certain things like i would i would go out and compete and i like i, I want to do this technique in the tournament or like, i'm only going to use these techniques in the tournament i, I want to i had a at one point i had a nogi della formula instructional coming out so i went out and i competed and i tried to showcase techniques from that instructional in a match that i did so like i got comfortable enough with competing that i was able to I guess, put pressure on myself about different things. It was no longer about, oh, no, I'm worried I'm going to lose. It was, can I pull off these specific techniques that I'm going to try and do? And the pressure became a lot more positive pressure and a lot more negative pressure. So I I would advise people against trying to get rid of the pressure and the nerves and just channel them in a positive direction.
1: Because they did say that, um, I think it was Tyson, they were saying that he used, like, the fear of humiliation – and he used it as like a beneficial means to progress. And I was thinking, I've tried that where you use like a bad event or like negative, like your know, memories to kind of fuel you to go on. And all I found was it just made me fuck up. Like, you know, it made me annoyed or it made me not want to even compete or to take part in jujitsu. And I thought, I'm definitely somebody on the side where I need to switch my mindset to you know take the pressure off but try i'm going to do x i'm going to try this i'm like you're saying i'm going to go in and use it as an experiment
2: yeah like try- well, i don't want to throw the guy under the bus but i don't think many of us should use mike tyson as an example of like healthy emotional development in our lives <laughs> so yeah let's maybe not use his example for too many things
1: i think it was it was a good quote something i think it came from one of his trainers and i thought well of course he's he's going to use the bump up the guy you know he's going to make yeah. it sound Yeah, kind of killer, but um I mean so how would you go about this then? I mean, is this a case of a month to six weeks out? Start ramping up your training a wee bit, do a wee bit extra here and there, have a you know, a rough idea of like say, I'm gonna try this sweep. I'm going to pull them into my guard.
2: Yeah. So uh, let's, let's get into specifics. So first off, let's, let's talk about the physical preparation uh, before we talk about the tactical preparation. So the physical preparation for somebody who hasn't competed much is honestly like you can do all the cardio, all the conditioning you want. You're still going to get out there. And in your first match, you're going to feel completely exhausted. There's literally no amount of physical conditioning you can do that will prepare you because physical can, con- and, and for the longest time when, when people start to develop their, their competition skills, they come out of every tournament, like, man, I should have done more cardio, man. I should have done more cardio, man. I should have done more cardio. I've come to believe that that's honestly not true. I'll be like f- conditioning helps. So get like, if you can't do, Let's say like in the gym, if you can't go out and do four or five almost back-to-back hard rolls and be like pretty okay, then you shouldn't compete. Like that is your, like whatever amount of matches you think you're going to have on the day. If you've got a bracket with what, 16 people, you're going to have four matches. So uh, like, and depending on what kind of tournament you're doing, that it, like some people have two matches. Some people have four. It's usually not more than four. If it's more than four, it's usually five and that's it. Unless you go to a very big tournament. So you kind of prepare for four matches. So if you can't go out with your teammates of roughly your skill level or belt level, roughly your size, if you can't go out and do, you know, if you're a blue belt, the matches are six minutes. So if you can't do four six-minute matches with like a two or three-minute break in between and basically be like, you know, you'll be a little tired, but not like "Oh my god, I'm done." If, if if during any one of the matches you're just like "Oh man, I'm done, I can't move," you're not in good enough shape to compete. That's so. That's the, your your baseline.
1: But yeah, def- I definitely need some work right
2: now. Yeah, but that's like so. Uh, like, it, but if you can do that, if you can do six, uh, sorry, a four or six minute rounds of like pretty hard rolling in the gym with a you know a few minute break because on tournament day you're gonna have anywhere from five to as much as 30 40 minutes between your matches so you should be fully recovered that should not be an issue once you've got that level of conditioning uh, yes you can do more you know you, you can add some um uh, some uh, high intensity interval training you can add all kinds of stuff you, you you can i'm not the guy to talk to about conditioning right like Get somebody who is a, you know, a certified strength and conditioning coach. They'll tell you what to do. It's not rocket surgery. And certainly at the at the lower levels, at the amateur, like very much amateur hobbyist levels, most people are not going to have the sort of um, free time or baseline level of what's called GPP, general physical preparedness, to add a bunch of strength and conditioning on top of their jiu-jitsu training without the addition of steroids right like it's not like you can all of a sudden go from training three four times a week to training 10 times a week uh without breaking your body down so that's just not physically possible for most people Uh, so just don't worry about it get yourself in good shape by doing jujitsu do a couple of extra conditioning sessions a week that allow you to properly recover your training camp shouldn't be more than four or five weeks because again, unless you're a very experienced athlete and unless you're on steroids, you can't take your body through a 12 week training camp. It'll just break. So it's, it's a matter of probably a month, maybe five weeks uh, where you're just going to slowly ramp up the intensity, do sharp tanks, do um, some simulated matches. And if that gets you ready for that amount of matches, great. If not, maybe wait for the next competition. There's, there's no sense in going if you're not at least basically physically prepared. But no matter what you do with your conditioning, the first few times you compete, you will absolutely blow your wad, and you will draw the, the wrong conclusion from it, which is that you need to do more conditioning. Most people who compete semi-frequently don't need to do more conditioning. They need to compete more frequently you'd be better off competing once a month than you would be doing an insane amount of strength and conditioning and competing once or twice a year.
0: It's time for a quick break. There are millions of potential products to buy. So how do you know which ones are worth your hard-earned money? Simple. You go to nextlevelguy.com affiliates and explore those that will transform and improve your life. You'll find deals, listener exclusives, and special offers with some great companies. Recommendations are 100% honest and only on items Ian has tried or believes in. The company showcased will make you a better man in all areas of your life. Simply go to nextlevelguy.com slash affiliates and level up.
1: Because I assumed that would be a case of like the very first roll you would, gosh, you know, dri- adrenaline oh, yeah. dump.
2: Massive and
1: ah uh, it's that's the thing it's like of like um guys from the gym they're in there training like every session you know lunch and evenings training using the gym but a lot of these guys you know they're either at school or they're coming in with a six pack and they go to college and they've got no other responsibilities and you know i'm working like a full-time job as well i'm 37 and i'm thinking i can't keep up with that like i'll I'm, you know and that's why i loved when i found you talking in one of your interviews was like You came into the gi rolling a bit older. So you built a system to sort of accommodate it. Because when I initially thought, I'm tall, long, I quite like the idea of Spider-Guard. And I read up all these sweeps and stuff, and I thought, brilliant. And then the next article I read, somebody said, Spider-Guard was obsolete. Everybody knows (laughs) that. And I was just like, for the love of... Like, then I, I like the idea of you, though, where you were saying, you know, you look at it as in terms of levers, arches, like wedges. Look at it in terms of how do I, you know, how do I use the concepts to deal, create a system from it? And I really like that approach. So it doesn't really matter what your opponent's doing. You build something that works for you. Use it, And do, do, does the concepts then allow you to just say, it doesn't matter how your opponent comes to you or what guard they use you can always just think okay where's the lever where's the wedge i can put and where's the
2: yeah so v- this is a, a really important distinction between you know amateur hobbyist lower belt competitors and the the elite professional type competitors which is a, as a you know let, let's just say beginner to intermediate grappler There are going to be situations that you haven't seen before that you don't have a prepared answer for. And if you don't have a conceptual understanding of what's going on, then you're fucked. So, you know, you can go into a match as a white belt or a blue belt, and even to some degree as a purple belt if you're, you know, more on the amateur, like hobbyist scale. And there are just guards or or sweeps or whatever that you won't have much experience with. And if you've never again if you if you don't have a grounding in how to respond to novel situations with an adaptable problem solving algorithm, you're just you're, the, the technique will just overwhelm you.
1: That's you're the good. first person that's ever talked about stuff like that. And that's why I was like, this is my guy. I love this kind of stuff. I love the problem solving aspect of it.
2: Yeah. So the the um, the more experienced guys, honestly, at a certain point the conceptual stuff is going to matter less. One, it'll just be because you understand it better and it will have become more um, more instinctive or intrinsic. But two, it'll just because be because you, you reach a level of experience, particularly when you're competing, uh, where you'll be able to funnel everything into your game and you will be good enough at the initial you know what we refer to as range battles you'll be good enough at the initial range battles that you won't get so drawn into a a foreign or unfamiliar situation of which there will be so so few of them at that point that you know the odds of you having to come up with an entirely novel solution in the moment start to drop dramatically when you're an elite black belt competitor There just aren't going to be too many things you haven't seen, so like that doesn't mean that it it goes away completely. There's certainly going to be times where, and and again, it won't like by the time you're competing, it won't be you know on a conscious level. You will just access levers, you will regain base, all that stuff will happen in the background pretty automatically. Uh, But as a beginner to intermediate grappler, having the ability to, especially in in gi competition where you can slow things down. Having the ability to go, oh, they're controlling this lever. Let me try to change it into a frame or let me deny them access to it. It, It's huge. And and as a coach, the ability to just call out very simple instructions based on the idea of base posture structure, frames and levers and kuzushi and stuff like that, it's invaluable. It it allows people to receive instruction uh, on competition day uh, in a way that usually only very experienced uh, competitors can receive so yeah the 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 process of uh i guess internalizing or understanding the concepts for a beginner it's it can't be overstated if you want to go out and compete and be learning how to compete in a in a way that's interactive with your coach because the and again, this is something that you know we can talk about it, but really, if you don't have a coach that's going to go out with you to competition, which a lot of people don't. Unfortunately, I have seen a lot of uh, tournaments where people are, are showing up and they don't have a coach. So that, that, that sucks and that's on their coach for not being as invested in their students' growth. But uh, if you do have a coach who's going to show up, or if you don't have a coach, if you have a teammate who's going to show up with you and you know it's going to be the same teammate, if you both have the same language that you're speaking, you have the the same vernacular terminology that you're going to be using throughout the matches then as you compete you're not just learning to compete uh, in the sense of your own skill set and what you're applying you're learning to compete in the sense of listening to your coach and your coach is learning to be a better cornerman for you or for the other students through the application of the, this conceptual vernacular so it definitely changes the experience for the beginners and the intermediate guys where they're, they're going to be able to use and apply this stuff in a way that is not going to be nearly as um, applicable for, for the experts.
1: Because the, um, the other day I was listening to one of your interviews you did with um, like Stephen yeah, And, Kwon, yep. and as you were talking about like how just having like a submission on, I think it was the Alignment 2.0 episode, you were talking about how when you had an armbar on, it wasn't always enough to tap somebody out, uh, you know, at, like a higher level. Then you need to break their alignment to actually to get them to tap. Whereas you would need to have two, control of two joints when you had a submission on to get somebody likely to tap. Because you know you could just crank the arm at one point, if you didn't block it, at another. It, you know like, all these kind of concepts. And I was thinking, I've never been told that. You kind of had. We had to kind of find a lot of this out on our own. Or me and a, a training partner, we kind of pushed it and said, Problems well, if you did this. How would you do if we took this move and rolled it into this and. And I've learned more just from listening to you in a podcast than I think I have from my coach. And unfortunately we don't have the coach who then comes to the the competition. We have training partners who they seem to have like a little group who go and compete in yep. time. And I was wondering like how to use them. And I like the idea of having a kind of commonality in the language and the approach so we can support each other. Um, I mean, What kind of mistakes do you normally see in, you know, is it the fact that people come in and they immediately think, right, I'm going to pull guard. I'm going to scissor sweep you. I'm going to do X. And then they don't have a backup plan or they don't know how to think on their feet.
2: Yeah. So I guess that's a very good way to segue into the, like the, you know, we've talked about the physical preparation, the tactical preparation is actually, to me, that's the most fun part. And it's the part that's very, it's really easy to prepare people tactically for, for matches, I, and sorry, I say, it's really simple, I don't want to say easy, because there's, that's a really important distinction, I, I would argue that for most people in their lives, the solutions to most of their, their problems are very simple, that doesn't mean that they're easy, you know, like if the problem in your life is that you're overweight, the answer is incredibly simple, it's work out and eat less, that doesn't mean it's easy, right, and so the, the, the process of tactically preparing for a competition is really simple you're going to go out and you need to have a way of getting the match to the ground for most beginners to intermediate people. I don't recommend that they, they they have that method be a takedown because the, it just, it takes more time and more, and and it's just more difficult to develop a good takedown game. If you've already got one, if you've come to jujitsu from, uh, wrestling, or judo, or even rugby, or, you know, you know American football, or whatever, whatever you know how to tackle people, then sure, go for it. Uh, but for the most part, you're better off, at least under most rule sets, you're better off pulling guard. That's your way of getting the match to the ground. One thing I hate seeing is two white belts doing five minutes of bad judo, and never getting the match to the ground, because all they, their, their whole plan was, well, I'm going to go in, I'm going to get a takedown. Honestly, unless you have like really overdeveloped takedowns for a white belt, you're probably not going to get a takedown. It's just like the, or unless the other person just has absolutely no takedown training. And for some reason they've chosen to stay standing. And again, you will see that. So you'll see that false positive of somebody goes out, hits a Totally garbage throw on some poor white belt who wasn't told that if they don't know how to do takedowns, they should immediately pull guard. <laughs> right? I see that on the gym a lot. Yep. Oh yeah, you, you see, you see these two. Yeah, like I, I, I've in my gym, I often will like I'll see a, a, a relative beginner start a roll standing with like a higher belt, and I'll just be like, "Yo, do you know how to wrestle?" He's like, no, I'm like, well, then sit the fuck down. What are you doing? You're going to get thrown on your fucking head, right? Like there's, we don't need to be macho about that kind of crap. Learning how to do takedowns and receive takedowns is a very specific skill. And if you're not doing it properly, don't fuck around with it because you'll just get injured. So like, if you're going to be a dilettante about takedowns, don't do them. Just sit the fuck down. So that's the first thing is, like, for the most part, most people in most tournaments for their first little bit, they should just pull guard. Just get it over with. Get really good at it. And when we recommend guard pulling, we recommend that it be a guard pull to a sweep. So we're not really pulling guard. We're pulling sweeps. We're pulling directly to a a tripod sweep or, like, a Yoko Tomonagi-type sweep, or we're pulling directly into X guard or single leg X or De Hiva. Like, you're not just going to some random guard that you're that you're not going to have an immediate chance of sweeping the person. That right there will take care of, especially for white belts, that will take care of the first part of the match. If you have a guard pull to a sweep that you're good at, and then you have a backup plan for that one, you basically have a guard that you're going to play and one or two sweeps that you're going to be trying to do from that, and you've got good guard retention, which you should. If you're entering a tournament and you don't have guard retention, don't enter the tournament. If all you're capable of is, I'm going to pull guard and do this sweep, and if that fails, you're going to get your guard passed, don't enter the tournament. Have guard retention. If you don't have guard retention that's good enough at your belt level that most people at your belt level struggle to pass your guard, then you just shouldn't be competing. Because everyone who competes regularly on almost any level – has decent guard retention relative to their belt level. If you don't, you're at a bad school that doesn't teach guard retention and you shouldn't go out and compete until you learn how to do it of your own volition. So if you understand that tactically, if you understand that if you've got decent guard retention and you've got a couple of sweeps you can go to and you're going to go out and pull guard, then you're good. You're going to be fine. And then if you get on top, you're going to get on top from one of your sweeps, which means you know exactly the position you'll be landing in, and then just develop one or two passes from there, and you're good to go. If you just sweep someone and pass their guard, there's basically no way you can lose. So if you know nothing else, if you don't know how to finish from side control, you don't know how to finish from the back, who fucking cares? You've got enough tools, like tactically, you can do that. The same way that you can tactically take somebody like Um, Nicky Rodriguez, who is a, you know, obviously very good jujitsu practitioner on a global scale, but on the scale of ADCC, total beginner, but has enough uh, wrestling ability that he can negate the rest of the jiu-jitsu exchanges, you can very specifically prepare for a kind of tournament and have, you know, maybe 10 or 20% of the overall skill of the other participants but if the skill that you have within that 10 or 20% is incredibly well developed and your tactics are on point, you can win the tournament or or place or, or do really well.
1: So say then, following that kind of idea, which that's an amazing set of game plan. And I love how you've you've broken down this bullshit, kind of overcomplicated idea I had in my head of how I was gonna do it and the extra stuff is focusing, you know, like the idea of just can you roll hard for six minutes for four rounds of six minutes? No. Well, don't compete yet. Is your guard retention up to scratch? No. Then don't repeat. Yeah. You know. And then having something as simple as that, but having a backup plan, I really like the idea because I had it in my head I was going to do this here and I was going to do this throw and I was going to work on this and I was going to go running and I just know I would end up fucking up on a grand scale basically. Oh, it totally. All
2: the, it's because it's too much. It's too much to expect somebody competing for the first time to have all this stuff going through their head. The the only thing you need is a really basic game plan, and the rest of the stuff needs to be pretty automatic. Like, your guard retention needs to be pretty automatic. Uh, one thing that I think is really detrimental, like, sp- very specifically, to uh, preparing for competition and succeeding in competition... At least at the beginner level, uh, and, and even on the overall level, is uh, the the emphasis on preparing to escape bad positions. That's basically worthless. If you get mounted, I don't care how good your mount escapes are. You've lost the match. the The odds that you come back from having been either taken down and had your guard passed, or you know pulled guard and had your guard passed, or whatever, like somebody sweeping you and passing your guard and mounting you. That is a chain of events that is uh, significant enough in revealing the other person's superior skill that you being able to escape their mount or escape their back control or whatever is really not going to factor in. At that point, you're down. Like if somebody took you down past your guard and mounted you, that means you are now down nine points. It is almost impossible to make that up. Yes, you could maybe pull off a submission victory, and I'm not saying it doesn't happen, and I'm not saying people should give up if they get mounted. What I'm saying is if you're preparing for a tournament, like if, if as a white belt or a blue belt, one of the things that you're really good at in the gym is escaping, that's going to mean nothing. And like if you're the guy who gets their guard passed but always regards, it, that's not going to help you in a match. You're just gonna re-guard and get your guard passed over and over again. You're gonna lose 20 to nothing. Uh, so there, there are a lot of skills that people think are important in jiu-jitsu. And I don't I'm not, that's not to say that they're not important overall to be a complete jiu-jitsu practitioner, but escaping bad positions, which is what most people learn at White Belt, right? Like the white belt's the survival belt. You learn how to escape the mount, you learn how to escape side control, you learn how to re-guard, you learn how to do all that if that's the kind of school you go to where that stuff is emphasized and you don't have guard retention, you don't have decent passing or sweeping, then, I mean, you can compete, but if you face somebody who comes from a school where they've developed any of the other skills, you're just basically guaranteed to lose. Those those skills do not matter when it comes to winning a tournament.
1: Because that was the other bit of the research I was doing when I heard you talk about... Um... It, you were saying about, you know, what about mount escapes, I think it was, and you were saying like, you know, what's what's a common thing that you're taught? It's like the grab the arm and like, you know, the like trap and roll, yeah. uh, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to remember the exact, we have a slightly different term for it, yeah. and uh, I was just looking thinking, and you were like, yeah, well, you're going to do that on somebody, high, a high level person? No. Let's not go out. And I was thinking, well, what should you do? Should you just stop and stay and wait and wait till they make a mistake and come forward? But like you're saying, somebody who's highly skilled, is not going to do that. There, you're going to know their game plan. And by the time you actually get ready to do that, they've already initiated their plan. And the chances are you're going to fail. Yeah. So is it literally a case of just in the initial stages, just don't be the the aggressor, almost be the person you know forcing your game plan on them rather than the other way around or
2: absolutely so especially at the the beginner to intermediate and, and uh, i hope i've made it clear enough that you know what i'm trying to do here is give advice for a white and blue belt who is trying to compete and how we can uh optimize their preparation to it uh, to increase their odds of success uh because there are certainly as you become more experienced there is certainly the like the jujitsu version of a counter puncher, a counter fighter, where you allow people to move forward and you set traps for them. But as a beginner, n- not so much. You, you—that's a very difficult game to play. No, you should try to impose the. I mean, I, you could argue that you always want to impose your game on people, but I think at the beginning, yeah, you want to try to get your whatever couple of things that you can do because your ability to work effectively outside of the couple of things that you can do is going to be so drastically diminished that it's uh yeah like you're gonna have a hard time succeeding with it so yeah i would recommend have that game plan try to execute it don't uh i mean the one thing that you can say for competing with other beginners is that beginners make mistakes at, a, at an extremely high rate. So you, you definitely can count on somebody to make a mistake that you can exploit. The problem is, will you have the presence of mind to exploit it? Will you recognize the mistake or the severity of the mistake? Uh, and I, I think that your first couple times out, that's going to be that's not going to be as available to you as you would like to think so it's better if you just concentrate on doing what you're going to do
1: because that's definitely not me the person saying thinking i'll lay like a venus fly trap, i'll lay this trap here and all this you know if i find if i do that i end up getting myself in such stupid positions and usually having to tap because of a silly mistake i've made and yeah, I like that approach. It's just keep it simple. Was it the KISS method? You yeah, know, keep, keep it simple. simple to it.
2: Yeah, well, and the, the thing about traps that's so, this is where you start to get into the, this like, it's a bit of a minefield because so much of the jujitsu that's taught out there is these bullshit traps that really only work on lower level grapplers or people who've just never seen it before. Uh, there are uh, There are some very sophisticated traps out there. But what you mostly see taught as traps are just bullshit low percentage moves. Uh, you know the idea of submitting somebody from a bad position, or you know, even certain things where you you know you bait someone to pass your guard. I, I would say that a lot of people that are exposed to those kinds of traps, uh, those kinds of like tricky games, that peters out. Like it, it works to a point, and then it just doesn't work at all anymore. So if our community wasn't so populated by uh, substandard instruction and, you know, these gimmicky games that, that people will, will try to, to foist on people, then I would say, yeah, sure, build a game on traps. But the idea of setting traps, traps have to be sophisticated and they have to have a layer of, uh, of redundancy. Like almost, if you want to be tactically sound, you need layers of redundancy to your game. So you can set traps where if the trap fails... There's a, a tactical retreat that you can perform. But if you're just setting traps, and if the trap fails, then you get your guard passed, or you get your back taken, or whatever, then that's a shitty trap. And you, you shouldn't really bail the game on that. And that's what I think a lot of people are referring to when they talk about setting traps. It's a very unsophisticated version of setting traps that can be easily shut down by experienced practitioners.
1: I'm glad you said Doc. <laughs> um Something I was was really interested in the idea was that when we went through the the pandemic, we had this thing where everybody was giving away free instructionals. There's the wealth of, you know, like the YouTube videos. How should somebody... Now, I go to Gracie Barra, and I'm not just bitching on them. I'm sure Atos and all the likes of those have the same kind of things, where they expect you to use their brand of jujitsu, their subs, their scapes and stuff is it worth looking on youtube and finding like a good you know from your strongest position picking like a certain darse maneuver and practicing that on a free roll with a, with a teammate should you look at an instructional and think oh that's a good sweep to do or if for your 100%, first 100%. Targets, yes
2: yeah i the 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 wealth of information that's available uh right now online is phenomenal you know i that's not to say that there isn't a bunch of bad information still out there. Uh, So I would like, I would say absolutely with the caveat that if you know how to find good information, if you're going to reputable uh, sources and and you find stuff that works for you, hundred percent, if you're going to use it as a crutch or as a substitute for proper learning, in other words, if you're going to try to cheat the process, like you see a lot of people will go out and seek out wacky submissions and come back to their gym and do a bunch of low percentage crap that happens to work on their teammates. Cause they've never seen it before. Like if you're looking for a shortcut, then don't, don't do that. I would actually uh, warn people away from that sort of thing because you're going to go down a lot of blind alleys. Uh, whereas if you, uh, if you go to the right sources, you get good information. I, I absolutely recommend it. N- nobody should be a carbon copy of their instructor. Um, Obviously, your instructor should influence you uh, and you you might play games that uh, are that come from your instructor to a pretty extensive degree, but everybody should be developing what works for them, especially if you're just a hobbyist. Like, this is fun. This is something you do as a, as a recreation. Uh, and jujitsu should be a form of self-expression, even if you compete. It's just that if you're interested in competing, it's probably even more so incumbent on you to not just mimic the the game of some like local instructor. If you're mimicking, you know, Andre Galvao's game, that is as competition proven as it gets. So uh, yeah, I don't think you can go wrong with getting good instruction from elite people and adding that into your game. I think that's super beneficial, uh, even and especially for competition. Like the the, the, the again, I think I mentioned the idea of like the majority of instructors out there and the majority being, you know, probably more than 50% are teaching stuff that works for them against other uh, like lower level practitioners. You know, most coaches, most people who own jujitsu gyms who haven't competed, all they're really doing is just moves that work on their students, moves that work on other people who don't compete that much in a, in a non-competitive environment. So like the the standard of efficacy for techniques in a lot of gyms is – just it's really poor. There's a lot of stuff that gets taught that's just. It, I don't want to say it's garbage, but like it's pretty close to it. It's certainly uh, you know it's certainly uh, ready to be recycled if it's not garbage. The, so if if you can find something that's a level above that, then go for it.
1: Because we had them a couple of years ago. We had it was like a year and a bit ago when I first started we had done like, say, five main guard passes against like f- foot and collar guard, uh, spider guard, and you know, like how to pass them from there. And then we used to do like five minutes where you would just go through. And meet, the training partner I have is brilliant. Where we would go through it step by step by step, get as many reps in as possible. And I started feeling like I could do it in my sleep. And, you know, it's like these guys that pull the guns apart where they're blindfolded and reassemble them. It's like a sort of therapeutic thing. And yeah. now we've switched to this kind of training where it's like, you know, this is the the best, this is where I want you all to go when you're rolling. And it's like maybe a headquarters position for somebody who's small and nimble, whereas I'm a big loon, you know, and I I struggle from certain positions. And I need to, I have a, a pressure passing kind of game that works best for me. And I don't like being told, no, no, do this, because that's what works against somebody, their side. And this is where I was struggling was, do I go down the Gracie Barra approved route, or do I say yeah i'll train that i'll get the movement and i'll get the rules and but i'll also work on developing my own stuff that i've seen on youtube and you know do it you know what yeah, I, mean? It, I mean this
2: is honest, this is honestly a, a i mean this is less a competition question and this is more a question of uh of trust or faith in an instructor or in a you know in an academy and uh, unfortunately uh, a lot of people don't have that. And that's a shame that they don't. And it's not their fault. It's the fault of the uh, of the instructors. Uh, if you don't have the ability as an instructor to create an atmosphere where people can develop a game that works for them, then that's a little bit on you. Now, having said that, you, you can be a really good instructor and you can have that kind of atmosphere and there are still going to be people who feel like, they can do it better than you. Like the, the Dunning Kruger effect is a very real thing. And there are going to be people who don't want to, uh, to take the advice of an instructor, even when that instructor is giving them excellent advice. And there are sometimes things that like, there are games that, uh, are counterproductive to try to develop as a beginner. There are things that are, you're better off trying to develop, um, like, for instance, I'm really weary to try to teach beginners pressure passing. Pressure passing is subtle, and as a beginner, as, as a white belt, it's extremely difficult to develop that, whereas movement-based passing goes a lot better with just, like, the, the level of proprioception that people have. And then as they develop better body control through larger movements, they're able to more easily access the, the more subtle movements of pressure passing. So until somebody's like a fairly experienced white belt, I recommend against pressure passing. The same token, I don't allow my white belts to close their guard because that just creates extremely static uh, practitioners and people who have no guard retention. You have blue belts who've got a decent closed guard, but if their guard is open, they're, they're mincemeat for anybody with any kind of guard passing game. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are people who have come to my gym who have been like, well, Rob doesn't let me use closed guard and I'm a, you know, a tall guy with long legs and closed guard would be my best game, so fuck him. I'm going to go and learn this and I'm going to go and learn that. Uh, so it's it really important to be honest with yourself about what your motivation is behind doing something like this. Uh, you know, at our gym, it, once you're a blue belt, once you're a purple belt, absolutely, like my students learn from instructionals, they learn, they bring information from outside the gym in and we work on it. We are extremely open like that. So hopefully the people who I, you know, at, at white belt, who I'm telling, Hey, don't do that right now. They understand why I'm telling them that I'm not, I'm just, I'm not saying don't do that. I'm saying, don't do it right now. There is definitely a way to, uh, to learn which maximizes your learning. And that's what I'm trying to give people. And it's not to be a technique collector at white belt. Uh, but, it does very much sound like what you've got is a circumstance where people are trying to restrict you from developing a, a more personalized game at a, a, a little bit of a higher belt. And I would say under circumstances like that, it's unfortunate, but yeah, you, you're probably going to want to ignore your coach a little bit and develop uh, methods that are more conducive to your personal development.
1: Because when I was listening to some of your like, other interviews you've done, and you know, I was sitting there thinking yeah why do we learn the closed guard as your first move yeah why do you teach somebody in jiu-jitsu the first thing to do is pin yourself down and the white belt will just hold them on for dear life not to let somebody pass because they don't know how to defend how they could stop an attack so mm-hmm. they're just going to hold on for the for dear life and just strengthen it the whole way through as you were talking about stuff like that you know why are we taught that at such a high level like you know the the trap and roll and I'm thinking why? Why? What? You know, it's it, it kind of like all these light bulbs were going off, and I was thinking, yeah, I'm gonna to have to do this on my own a lot. You know, still go to class and learn the moves, and you know, when I've got a great set of teammates, and we do stuff outside of the gym together, like go and play football and all this kind of stuff. So the camaraderie is there, and there's people who compete regularly, and it's it's a shame we don't have that. But I mean, I suppose that comes down to these affiliations not wanting to be like everybody else you know they want to stand out and jujitsu for all and all this kind of stuff and so how do you then build your idea of like a chain of attacks are you just literally walk sweep i'm good at walk passing i'm good at and then have a backup from that position that that sweep would break down in or
2: yeah that's pretty much it. it it literally does come down to a uh have a system have a system of uh, a few sweeps uh, that connects to your guard retention have a system of a couple of passes that connects to the position that you're going to sweep someone from and then you know that will usually arrive at a particular position after you've passed and then you know develop a couple of attacks from there if you watch high level competition that's all they're really doing. Like the, the, the depth that they're able to bring to these positions is far, far greater. But you're not really going to see, at least not very often, and, and, and there are very few uh, high-level practitioners that play all these different guards and do all these different attacks. You're basically seeing somebody use their go-to guard or go-to takedown to get to a position they want, whether it's getting on top and then trying to pass from there, or getting on the back and trying to finish from there, or getting you know, in the Nogi sphere, elevating someone into a leg entanglement and trying to finish from there. Like, there are very defined pathways that are highly systematized. So, that's all you do. You just do whatever version of that you're capable of at White Belt and Blue Belt. Uh, your system at that point will be pretty narrowly focused and there won't be as many branches. Uh, and that's okay. But to, to try to do it somewhat like, To pretend that it's going to that having a a drastically different approach to what's done at the high level is going to somehow uh, you know magically transmogrify into what's done at the high level at a certain point. That's not the way it goes. You're just going to start out where you're at and try to build your way towards. Like Ryan Hall has this saying, which is begin with the end in mind. If you begin with the end in mind of being a good black belt competitor. Whether you ever become a competitor of black belt isn't going to matter because you're just going to be taking all the right steps. So you'll end up being a pretty damn good blue belt competitor, a pretty good purple belt competitor, or a pretty good competitor for whatever your particular uh, level is that you attain. Uh, but if you start out with the idea of like, oh, well, you know, I'm just going to compete a couple of times at white and blue belt, and uh, you know, I'm just going to free ball it, and I'm going to do whatever, I'm going to do this, that, you're you're setting yourself up for failure. Like, start with a good plan for getting to becoming a good competitor, and it'll happen somewhere along the way, and and you'll you'll be you'll be more honest with yourself throughout the process.
1: Because that's definitely the kind of person I am. I'm, I'm I learn by creating a system, whereas I notice a lot of this is here's the move and I used to always stop and say to training partners, where would you go with this? How would you link this pass into then going for a submission? Or how would you, you know, once you've escaped, where would you then go? And a lot of times people are kind of like, uh, 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 you know, they they have a very kind of vague answer. And I need to know like A to B to C to D. Like I want to have an idea in my head. Like you're saying, reverse engineer. I want to be in mount with his arm map or xyz you know and yeah. then work back from there and but how would you while you're doing this something i do like to do is like used i've used tools to analyze how i'm performing but how could you monitor your progression is it intrinsically feeling that oh i know where my legs are during this pass you know or this submission attempt and do you start feeling where your body is and then you start learning to control it better and then controlling your opponent's But Do you write out? Do you record? How would you go about knowing that you're getting better as you're leading up before you compete?
2: You won't know until you compete. The, you only measure progress. So like there are, these are two separate paths, right? Like you, you measure your progress in jiu-jitsu by the uh, – like the amount of links in the chain, like you were talking about adding links. So the, what you can do in the gym will always be more broad than what you can do on competition day. So you're really measuring two different, um, uh, like skill sets in two different tracks in the gym. What you're, it's, it's pretty simple. Can you do more things than you could before? That's really the bottom line. It's like, you know, are you, are you becoming skillful at more movements are you becoming skillful at more um, I would say gambits so like we we can divide uh, the like the your, your ability in jiu-jitsu into a couple of things right like we, we can talk about the, the purely physical exertion of movements and so by that met uh, by that rubric or by that metric as you develop more movements you are more skillful at jiu- Jitsu provided that those movements are um, are contributing to your effectiveness. Because one of the problems with being a move chaser is you can know a bunch of moves and even be able to do a bunch of moves at certain times, but your overall effectiveness as a grappler isn't isn't improving. Like you know, I would argue that you know, if you're somebody who knows a bunch of wacky submissions from, from weird places and you occasionally catch people in them, but you get your guard passed an awful lot, then you adding to the amount of movements you can pull off, that's not really making you better as a grappler overall. It's making you able to occasionally derive Hail Mary, you know, success from Hail Mary movements. And so you're getting this uh, the, this illusion of progress because every once in a while, your wacky shit works, but most of the time you get shut down. So you, you think you're getting better, but really, you're, you're actually quite stagnant as a practitioner. So it's important to have a, a, a good rubric, and so that that rubric is: Am I contributing to this, or am I increasing the amount or the number of skills that make me more and more effective against like really experienced, high level people? If you're getting better at uh, you know at murdering blue belts as a purple belt, but you're not getting better at surviving or or or, or uh, competing well, having competitive roles against brown belts, then you're not really improving. If you're just adding on to your ability to dominate lower skill people, you, that's not real improvement. So th- that's one uh, rubric for improvement. And then the only way you'll be able to measure your your improvement for competition is going to be on that day, are you able to, to, to execute more of the skills that you developed in the gym? There, there's, there's no way to measure it leading up. You can be pulling off new movements a whole bunch leading up to a tournament and then you go out there and you try to do them and you're not able to pull them off and that you know by that rubric by that measure you did not improve as a competitor even if you won you went out you won and, and you did great but you couldn't pull off any of the new movements then you know you improved maybe as a as a function of like let's say you didn't get as nervous you didn't gas you, you, you know your, your, your conditioning held up better uh, then you improved as a competitor, like in, uh, in the sub skill of competing, you improved, but you didn't improve your competition jujitsu. So, like we're, now we're we're subdividing even more, right? Like we're talking in gym jujitsu versus competition jujitsu versus competition um, efficacy and coolness under pressure. So, the, like you can measure all of those individually. And again, depending on how honest you are with yourself, you can say that I improved as a competitor without getting any better at jiu-jitsu. And you can say that I got a lot better at jiu-jitsu but didn't improve as a competitor. And those are both valid things. And it's important to know what they are if you're going to take measurements. And then like I mentioned the idea about movements and then like gambits. So having uh, you know, traps that you're setting, having bluffs that you create, being able to read people's movements... That's another area that you will improve at. And again, you may improve at that in the gym, but you didn't improve enough as a competitor to be able to impl- apply it. So there are there, um, tactics and strategies and gambits that you will improve at without having improved your individual physical ability with certain movements. Did, did that all make sense?
1: Definitely, because I was thinking in my head when you were saying it, it was like, yeah, I definitely did that where I would be – you know, I would be sort of forced beating up the the lower kind of less skilled people. And I was kind of going, yeah, I'm still good. I'm still good. But I wasn't kind of really pushing. I wasn't challenging myself. And yeah, it, that kind of hit home a lot. I mean, it's something that I think that is also coming down though, to like the lack of motivation. I just come off an injury. And I think I'm now realizing I put far too much pressure on myself that I wasn't looking at this right as a kind of approach and i was kind of still using like you know tapping the less skilled p- members or the people who like i had a, I had a plan that who could just override their best defenses you know and it's like because a lot of times i wouldn't get a chance to roll with like the, the brown belts because they were teaching the class yeah. So, we had maybe like a few purples and a few um, blues and you know, a few, occasional a few whites in there. And you didn't always get a chance to roll with the best people in the class because I had to go off or whatever kind of stuff. And I think that's the thing I was judging myself off that, going, yeah, I'm still okay. But I wasn't really learning. I wasn't improving my repertoire of skills. I was just kind of using what worked, if you know what I
2: mean. Yep. And it's not, yeah, that's not, a, not enough. That, yeah, that's a different, like, understanding and measuring progress is a whole other thing. Like uh, I'm actually filming a module right now for my, for the online Academy for BJJ concepts in the, in the pedagogy section on uh, assessing progress and how to self assess uh, and distinguish between false positives and, you know, what's a a plateau and what isn't and all that kind of stuff. So uh, yeah, this this is again, material on this is severely lacking in the community. So that's something that I'm trying to, uh, to rectify to the to the small degree that i'm able to what so what
1: would you then if you had to set a four-week plan for would do you do strengths training at all uh it, it,
2: the, very individual if, if you've got the, the the energy reserve for it sure but like you know in terms of strength training, you're not going to get significantly stronger in four weeks, unless uh, you get the, like the beginner effect where you've never done strength training before, in which case you're going to be too sore from the strength training to really do too much jujitsu. So like, I'm, I'm not saying don't do strength training, but unless it's something you already do and have the capacity to continue doing, uh, I, I think most of the higher level athletes, they they, they back off on the, the strength training stuff leading up to a, a tournament. That's more like, before uh for, for somebody who's a beginner i i, I don't think it's going to have uh much of an impact perfect because that's uh
1: something I, I i get quite a lot of questions asking about that um so what would you want then the go home message to be for people about competing is it just going and having fun just learning more about yourself and getting that experience and you know yeah you i mean the, at, the,
2: at, the, at the beginner level and the intermediate level especially there's Like, you know, we talked about what aspects of pressure are good and that you don't want to go in with like the excuse of, oh, well, I was just there to have fun and let yourself off the hook for preparing properly. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, it is something that you should be doing at that stage to have fun. If we're not talking about professional competitors or people who are trying to become professional competitors, this is a hobby. This is something you're doing for fun. Have fun with it. Do it as a way to enhance your experience with jiu-jitsu. Do it as a way to enhance your ability to be honest with yourself. I think the last episode we did, we kind of ended on that note of like, you know, jiu can be a way of preventing yourself from uh, becoming too, uh, uh, too orthodox in your thinking and you know, sticking your head in the sand and, and being unaware of reality as it shapes around you. Like competition is just, an extra level of that. It's, it's making sure like, cause you can still really bullshit yourself about a lot of stuff. If you only ever roll with your friends in the gym, you can bullshit yourself about the quality of your jujitsu. It's a lot harder to bullshit yourself. If you go out and compete, there's a, there's a clarity to it that it eliminates a lot of excuses. So especially if you're the sort of individual who likes to make excuses in life, And you want to get over that. You you want to get over that hump and try to be more honest with yourself. Uh, Introducing the honesty and clarity of competition, provided you prepare for it honestly, uh, will absolutely get you over that hump. Uh, And if, if you discover that it's something fun along the way, it took me a little while to have fun competing. Now that I do have fun with it, I really enjoy it. And I didn't before. I did not like competing at first. I had to force myself to do it. So if you want to be the sort of individual who allows whim to dictate your life, then, it, well, I mean, for one, you're not going to be a very effective or successful individual at any endeavor. If you want a, an exercise uh, or a, um, a format for overcoming whim and developing discipline in long-term goals which is where true freedom comes from then uh, over and above jujitsu itself competing jujitsu competing in jujitsu is a, an incredible vessel for that
1: i love that it's that's why i can tell just chatting to you is so good because it's making me think of all these additional staff and it's hard to keep focused because there's so many things i'd love to know your. To your understanding of it or to, to get some knowledge about it you know so we definitely got to do this again i mean it's, it's just blow me away finding your material and to see you're so helpful and understanding and positive it's it's great i know so many people are going to get something from this but for people listening who want to follow you you know connect with you the social media how can we get in touch how can we follow how can we sign up for your your website etc
2: yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm on Instagram uh, I'm at Island Top Team, and my online academy is on Instagram at, at BJJ Concepts. So uh, you can definitely hit me up there, and just BJJ or com if you want to sign up and uh, and try some of this stuff out. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm really good about responding to messages and emails and stuff like that. So if if, if anybody sends me a message and doesn't receive a reply, uh, just message me again. I, I've I, like uh, I. I almost never miss messages from people, but I'm sure it'll happen here and there. And when I have, I, I definitely get back to them on the second try. So don't think that it's that I'm too big time to answer your question. It just probably means they got lost in the shuffle, You know, might have ended up in my spam filter or something like that. So uh, definitely reach out. I, I try to be as responsive as I can possibly be.
0: Well, that's it for another week. And thank you for listening. It's now time to take what you've learned and use it to develop and enhance your life with the key points mentioned. Listen, try it, embrace it, use it, and crush it. Now's your time to hit that next level in your life. If you liked this episode, then please leave a comment on the show notes or a review of the show on your podcast platform. Everything helps evolve the show. Until next week, keep seeking the next level in your life.